You're listening to Wide Margins, Episode 62, The Dark Ages, Augustine. I need to start this episode out with an apology. It's been a really long time since we've been together. Uh, I went back and checked, and I was shocked (laughs) that I have not posted an episode since October the 21st, 2019. Uh, At this recording, it's January the 20th, 2020, and I probably have lost some listeners. Many of you probably thought, well, he's done with this little hobby. I never intended to be finished with this. Uh, The holidays came, life got really busy, as I'm sure it did for you, and I just kind of let it fall by the wayside. I've also been working on a writing project that I'll tell you about in a little while as I get closer to publication. But that has taken up a lot of my time as well. But I never intended to stop recording, and I'm glad to be back with you now. And I fully intend to continue the series on the Dark Ages, a church history series. And I have many other episodes in mind for the future. So I am not stopping. Wide Margins is in full swing, and I'm glad to be back in the, in the routine of things. Uh, We're going to pick up where we left off in our series on church history in the Dark Ages. Uh, Last episode, we talked about monasticism, and today we're going to talk about Augustine. Now, let's start with the name, because a lot of people say, is it Augustine, or is it Augustine, or is it something else? And the truth is, the way he said it and the way his mother said it probably was something entirely different, but today you can say either Augustine or Augustine, And I'm probably going to trip over the name a few times as I go through it. But for the most part, I say Augustine. Uh, Sometimes Augustine will slip out. I don't think it really matters a whole lot as long as we know that we're talking about this very influential uh, church leader from early Christianity. A lot of people would argue that he doesn't belong in the Dark Ages, and he is a bit of a transitional figure But we talk about him in terms of the Dark Ages because so much of his work influenced the way the church developed in the Dark Ages. Not only the Dark Ages, but you could also argue in the Reformation period. I'll say more about that in a little bit. But first I want to get into some biographical information about Augustine. And uh, we have a lot to, to deal with here because he wrote an autobiography. Uh, His autobiography is one of the earliest autobiographies, and it's entitled Confessions. It's unique in the style that he chose. He's written it, as you would expect, of a book called Confessions. He's written it in a confessional style. He writes it as if it's a prayer to the Lord. So he tells this whole story with God as the audience, and he's speaking to God throughout the whole thing in the form of a prayer. Before this time, people didn't write in a confessional style. And so Augustine may have developed a new literary style here with this. And that's one reason this is very influential. But another reason is it talks about the life of this very important church leader, Augustine. So here's some information that we get from confessions and other sources. Augustine was born in 354 in Tagust in North Africa. That's modern-day Algeria. And he had a pagan father and a Christian mother named Monica. In those days, 
Children were expected to take the religion of their fathers, so Augustine was raised as a pagan, but he was exposed to Christian doctrine through his mother. He was aware of it at the very least and sympathetic to it, probably had an interest in it, but he didn't practice it. In fact, he describes the early years of his life as one as a time that he was completely controlled by sexual lust and fought this but still gave into it until he reached the age of 30 or so. In fact, he said that in those days he would pray the prayer, grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. Maybe you felt that way before. Maybe you're dealing with that now. You're so controlled by sexual lust or some other temptation that you want to change, you know you want to change, but not just yet. You procrastinate repentance. Well, that's the stage he was in the early part of his life. He took a concubine at the age of 17, and they lived together for 13 years, had a son together named Adeodatus, and when he reached about the age of 30, his mother decided it was time for him to find a respectable life and uh, find a family and uh, find a wife. So she decided it's time to look for a wife. I, I know that seems kind of strange, but it wasn't all that unusual in those days for a 30-year-old man to have his mother making these kinds of decisions for him. So she decided it's time to find a wife. Now, you would think, well, okay, just marry the concubine. He's been living with her exclusively. Uh, they have had a child together, and that's the way we would do it most of the time th these days, but that's not the way things were done in those days. In those days, a person of August Augustine's standing wouldn't marry someone in the class of his concubine who was in a lower class. He would look for somebody who could pay a respectable dowry and um, so he left his concubine. He kept his son but he just cast her off and uh, he began looking for a wife that suited his mother's and his family's preferences. Um, also in his early years he was introduced to Cicero, the great orator. This was at about the age of 19. And this gave him his interest in rhetoric, and Cicero also gave him his life's purpose, which was to pursue truth. Um, in 374 to 383, remember he was born in about 354, so this was at about the age of 19, and in the next 9 or 10 years, he followed um, a philosophy called Manichaeanism, named after the 3rd century philosopher Manny. Uh, Manny taught a dualism similar to the Gnostics, if you're familiar with Gnosticism, and the idea that he had was that the world was the scene of an eternal conflict between two powers, one being good and the other being evil, and human beings were a mixed bag. The spiritual part of their nature was good, and the physical part of their nature was evil. And so the task that we have as human beings is to free the good from evil through prayer and abstinence from all the enjoyments of life, 
things that Augustine had enjoyed the early part of his life, like riches and lust and sexual immorality and wine and meats and luxurious homes. And Augustine became, became a follower of Manny and followed Manichaeanism, and he showed promise during this time as an intellectual, which caused him to move from his home in uh, Algeria to Italy in 384. So now he's, you know, about 20-something, 384, 30 years old, and it's in Italy that he becomes acquainted with Ambrose of Milan. Ambrose was a great, powerful bishop in Milan, and he was listening to Ambrose and being exposed to deeper truths of Christianity through Ambrose's preaching. Now, the story goes that Augustine was dealing with all of these influences. Uh, he had left his concubine, had his young son with him. He had moved from home to Italy. Uh, he had been dabbling in Manichaeanism and thinking about that dualism and the sinfulness of the flesh and the uh, holiness of the spirit. And uh, he's during all this time with his exposure to all these new things, it said that he heard children singing, take up the book and read. He heard them chanting this or singing it, and it prompted him to open his Bible. And when he opened his Bible, according to the story, it fell open to Romans 13, verses 12 and following. And I'm going to read what he read on that occasion. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's what he said he read upon being prompted by the little children singing the song, Take Up the Book and read. And he writes that instantly, as I reached the end of this sentence, it was as if the light of peace was poured in my, into my heart and all the shades of doubt faded away. It's so, it was so fitting to his situation that he regarded it as a sign from God. Now, let me stop here and say that this isn't the best way to study the Bible. I hope you realize that. Augustine got lucky uh, opening up to Romans 13. I mean, um, what if he had opened it up and it said something like, and Judas went out and hanged himself? Uh, would he have gone out and committed suicide? I sure hope not. I don't think he would have. Uh, so call it fortune, call it providence, call it a miracle. That's what he says happened, and it caused him to investigate further with Ambrose and at the age of 33, in 387, while in Milan, he was baptized by Ambrose, and that changed his life. Um, he had this wife he was betrothed to. Maybe he had already married her, but he was certainly not very close to her. And he left her when he became a Christian. He left her in Milan and returned to his home in North Africa. His mother was with him. She died on the, on the way to North Africa. 
And soon after his arrival, he entered a monastery with his son, Adeodatus, and his son died as well. So after all of this happened, after he became a Christian, his marriage ended, his mother died, and his son died. He had severe hardship after changing his life in this way. Uh, But he stayed with it. He stayed committed to the faith. He was ordained as a priest in 391. He became the Bishop of Hippo in 397, Hippo being located in North Africa as well, and died during the invasion of the Vandals in 430. That's the life of Augustine in a nutshell. There's probably a lot of other details and you might have a lot of questions. Uh, You can find a lot more information about him online. But instead of dwelling more on the biography, I'd like to talk about his influence, his teachings, his doctrines, and the developments that came from his work that uh, would influence the Dark Ages after him. The first heading that we'll go over on this has to do with the Pelagian Controversy. Uh, This was a controversy over the matters of sin, free will, and the nature of grace. Now, Pelagian comes from this British monk named Pelagius, who brought a challenging teaching to North Africa at the beginning of the 5th century. Pelagius argued that Adam was created mortal, even if, and even if he had never sinned, he still would have died. And that's a question I've always wondered about. I don't know that we really have the answer to it. When God created Adam and Eve, were they created immortal? Uh, were they immortal by virtue of being in the vicinity of the tree of life? Or would they have lived a long time but still died regardless of whether they sinned or not? Well, Pelagius said he knew, and he said Adam was created mortal. He would have died even if he had never sinned. Uh, he said the sin that he committed affected only him. He did not believe in original sin inherited sin. He didn't believe that sin could be passed from father to son or down through the generations. Uh, He also believed, Pelagius did, that it was possible to live without sin. And he even argued that some have lived sinless lives, not just Jesus Christ, but other regular human beings have lived their entire lives without committing sin. Not just infants and children, but people who have lived into adulthood, although he said that that was very rare. He also argued that there is no need for a special enabling power of the Holy Spirit for a person to live a sinless life. It's not miraculous at all. It's just a matter of willpower, heavy concentration. Uh, You don't need uh, an operation of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Another thing that he argued was that God doesn't predestine believers Although in his divine foreknowledge, God can see whether or not a person will choose good or evil. But God's not making that decision. That's totally up to the free will of the person, the individual. That's what Pelagius was saying. And these, these teachings, they may not seem all that controversial to you. But they were very controversial in Augustine's time. And Augustine himself strongly condemned Pelagius's theology. Uh, one of the reasons for that was Augustine's personal struggle with sin. 
which is why you need to understand the biography of Augustine and how in the early years of his life he really struggled with sexual immorality when he didn't really want to commit sexual immorality. That experience with sin made Augustine believe that an individual was not responsible for his sinful nature. He just couldn't help it, the kind of, the devil made me do it kind of mentality. Um, He said that Adam may have had free will, but after he sinned, Adam's soul became depraved, and that sinful nature that came upon Adam when he chose to sin was passed down to his descendants, which means all of us, all mankind. Uh, He argued that Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden and could no longer have fellowship with God, which deprived them of any connection with good and kept them from being able to choose the good. They couldn't choose it even if they wanted it. So that means Augustine did not believe in absolute free will. Uh, He said, sinful man can't choose God and live for him without divine help. Now, this brings us to the matter of grace. Most of us, most of the people listening to this podcast anyway, thinks of grace as God's unmerited favor. God giving you blessings you didn't earn nor deserve. And uh, that's the way I've always understood it. But that's not the way Augustine and many of his contemporaries looked at grace. Grace wasn't simply unmerited favor from God. Instead, Augustine pictured grace as a spiritual substance infused into us. Or maybe you could look at it as a supernatural love for righteousness that is given to us by God. He would use passages like Ephesians 2, 8, By grace you have been saved through faith. Uh, But also passages like Romans chapter 5, verse 5, which says that the Holy Spirit pours love into us. And we might think of that in terms of the influence of the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. You know, as we read the Scriptures, the love of God consumes us as we're inspired by what we read. But Augustine would look at that and he would say, this is a miraculous process. God chooses to send the Holy Spirit into your life, and with that comes this infusion of supernatural love for righteousness, which converts you from somebody who cannot choose good to somebody who cannot choose evil. That would be the idea. So. If you pressed him, Augustine would probably say he believed in free will, but that our freedom to choose God and choose free will is impossible without this enabling power of the Holy Spirit. So you don't have free will until God elects to send his Spirit on you, and that magic substance that he called grace then gives you the ability to choose good and choose God. Augustine believed that God predestined those whom he would elect to receive this grace. You can't on your own decide to follow God. You have to be elected for it. And after you're saved, more grace has to be communicated through the sacraments of the church. There were many sacraments, but the main ones he's thinking of here are baptism and the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. If you want to continue doing what's right, you have to receive baptism, and then 
you have to receive a regular dose of the Eucharist. You have to take the Lord's Supper, and it has to be administered by a, an ordained priest. Ordination was another one of the sacraments. You couldn't just do as, uh, as a lot of us do in church on the first day of every week and have a plate passed to you, and you take the unleavened bread and eat it, and you take the fruit of the vine and you drink it, you would have to go before a priest and have him put the wafer in your mouth or give you the cup to drink from. And that administration of the sacraments communicates more grace. And again, this is that supernatural love for God into your life so that you can continue to be saved. Now, this would kind of wane through the Dark Ages, but fire back up during the Reformation, and the Protestants during the Reformation heavily relied upon Augustine's teaching. And one of the differences is they didn't stress the sacraments as he did, but they certainly stressed the initial operation of the Holy Spirit, infusion of grace, and predestination as uh, you might see in Calvinism. So that made um, Augustine extremely influential. Uh, so what happened in the Pelagian controversy? Well, Augustine won. His powers of intellect were too strong for Pelagius, and Pelagius was condemned at the Council of Ephesus 431. While Pelagius had some good points and uh, some things that you might agree with, we can't say that we could agree with everything that he said. Uh, there were some serious problems, namely his extreme position of man's ability to lead a sinful, uh, I'm sorry, a sinless life. Uh, we know what the Bible teaches about that, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that there is none righteous, not even one, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. And uh, if if some have led a righteous life without the assistance of Christ, without the death of Christ, that means in their cases, at least, Christ died in vain, which was something Paul was, it was a mindset Paul was very concerned about in Galatians 2.21, for example. And so I don't think it's right for us to assume that it's possible to lead a, sin, sin, a sinless life. Uh, nobody can do that. Now, why nobody can do that, that's a, that's a debate for a different podcast, but I don't think it's original sin. Uh, I don't think that it's predestination or that even grace is some kind of spiritual substance or supernatural power God chooses to bring upon us. So Pelagius might have had some points, Augustine might have had some points, but both of them were off, off base when it comes to what the scriptures say. At any rate, Augustine, Augustine won the battle. Christian theology has been leaning in his direction ever since. And uh, there would be powerful challenges to his views in the 17th century, for example. Arminius would challenge him, but he remains influential. And uh, in terms of Christian theology, his view, at least with the Protestants, is the dominant view. Let's move on to a different category. Let's talk about Donatism. Now, Donatism has to do with the holiness of the church, with discipline, 
and with the purging of unworthy bishops. And the Donatist controversy takes us back to persecution under the emperor Diocletian. You may have to go back to previous episodes to understand what that's all about. But under Diocletian, many bishops recanted and gave up their copies of the Holy Scriptures to be burned. This hurt the church badly, and after Diocletian, Christianity made a comeback. When the persecution ended, several of these priests who had left the faith and been unfaithful, several of them wanted to come back into the church because it was safe again. But there was a bishop in Carthage named Donatus, from which this controversy's name comes. Donatus lived from 313 to 355. And Donatus insisted that these bishops had committed a serious sin of apostasy and that they were no longer fit to lead God's people, that they could never again serve as bishops in the church. One of the reasons for his protest was the belief that the validity of the sacraments depended upon the character of the minister. So, if you go to receive the Eucharist, which is so important so that you could have that infusion of grace to keep you saved, and the priest administering the sacrament is unworthy or unfit for service, then that, according to Donatus, affected the sacrament, corrupted it so that it did not benefit you spiritually in any way. So that's how he argued that these must be removed permanently from service. Augustine, as you can probably guess, was on the other side of the controversy. He argued that since God was the one at work in the sacraments, the action of the minister is valid regardless of who administers it. Um, so that's where the difference was. Donatus said the faithfulness of the minister in past and present affected the sacraments. Augustine, Augustine said it didn't. Um, Augustine backed up his uh, position, by the way, with the parable of the tares in Matthew 13, where a man sows his field and his enemy comes along behind him and sows weeds or tares, and the man says, just leave them, we'll remove them at harvest. The argument was that in the kingdom of God, Jesus knows that there will be uh, good and bad, and they will operate, and the kingdom will hold up under that situation, and it's not until the end of time that the good and evil should be um, separated, and that's basically the idea. So, again, Augustine won that controversy with the Donatists, and uh, for the most part, that was a good thing for the church. Now, one of the unfortunate consequences was that this sacerdotal view of the church made the priests the channel for the grace to the members of the body of Christ. And extreme views developed afterwards that gave the Pope and priests under him a lot of power over provincial rulers and even emperors. For example, they could excommunicate a ruler or even an entire country thus shutting them off from this grace infusion, this salvation. And that extreme view, extreme sacerdotal view, 
uh, became very commonplace in the Middle Ages, and we'll give some examples of that later on. Let me talk about one last thing, one last contribution of Augustine, and that's his work, City of God. Uh, City of God was a very voluminous work written by Augustine near the end of his life that addressed the question, did Christianity fail? Here's what happened. The Roman Empire was starting to decline, and uh, the first signs of it came in 410 with the invasion of the Visigoths in Rome. Those who fled from Rome after that invasion to Hippo, where Augustine lived, complained that the Roman Empire might have been crumbling because of its worship of Christ and its departure from paganism. It's a natural assumption. Uh, somebody sees Rome change from a powerful empire under paganism to a weaker empire under Christianity, and they might connect the dots and say that the problem was not the politics or the armies or the leadership, but the religion. And so that kind of influence was starting to creep in, and people were connecting the success of Rome with the validity of the church. Augustine responded with his final and greatest work, The City of God. He worked on it for 16 years. And in City of God, he explored the relationship of cities like Rome, which have their day, and the city of God, heaven, which is everlasting. Uh, there's a survey of human history in it, and it shows many of the flaws of paganism and urges Christians to give their allegiance to the church instead of a city like Rome or any other earthly city. And by writing this, he changed a lot of people's minds. They started realizing that any empire, Rome or America or anywhere else, will have its day. It will eventually fall. Unlike that, God's city will last forever. And you can't judge the validity of the church based on any earthly kingdom. Uh, it has no impact on, on God. Soon after the completion of Augustine's work, City of God, the Vandals besieged Hippo in 430. Augustine died during the siege. The Vandals broke through in 431. Uh, with the Visigoths' invasion in 410 of Rome, the Vandals in 430 of Hippo, the Roman Empire was on its way out. These barbarian invasions were starting to break through, and Rome was on its decline. But Augustine had given Christians hope beyond Rome to a place in eternity. We'll see more about how the Dark Ages unfold in the next episodes. Stay with us on Wide Margins.